behave. <laughs> yeah. Hey, Dave. Dave. How do we end up in the 60s nightclub? Well, I thought for our Austin Powers throwback episode, it might be nice to do something special. Oh, like taking us to this swinging retro bar? More like I had us cryogenically frozen and shot back in time to 60s London so we could better understand the gender politics of the Austin Powers franchise. Dave, no, I had a dentist appointment this afternoon. This is not cool. Well, say goodbye to those pearly whites, Jonah, and say hello to the groovy cocaine-laced truth of these films. Films. Austin Powers is cinema's greatest beta male. Totally cool, Dave. I, I'm going to go try and find a young Joe Strummer and see if he'll jam with me. Pre-Clash. It's going to be huge. Okay, Square. In the meantime, this is Galaxy Brains, and today we are finding our mojo with actress, film critic, and writer Maggie Mae Fish. Get in my belly! No, Dave, I will not get in your belly. That is disgraceful. Sorry, dude. You know I'm a bit nutty. <laughs> when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to Galaxy Brains, the podcast where movies, TV, and overthinking collide. I'm Dave Schilling. And I'm Dave's number two, Jonah Ray. And each week on the show, we start with the logical brain. Yeah, baby. Advance to the critical brain. A groovy baby. Question everything with the interrogation brain. Yeah, dingo ate my baby, baby. All right, this week's topic is Austin Powers, not a cry in the dark starring Meryl Streep. Sorry, baby. It won't happen again, baby. And of course, we arrive to the blessed state of the galaxy brain. Galaxy, baby. Yeah, I saw that coming a mile away. Jim Henson's Galaxy Babies. They'll make your dreams come true. Anyway, this is my happening and it freaks me out. I need to come down off this cloud. Let's put our feet back on the ground with a bit of logical brain. I'm going to dispense with the spoiler warning for a movie that is from 1997. You've probably seen this thing before. You know, it's the brainchild of comedy genius Mike Myers. In the first film in the trilogy, horny 1960s super spy James Bond parody named Austin Powers gets cryogenically frozen and woken up in the late 1990s. Poor little Austin has to contend with not only his arch enemy and secret brother, Dr. Evil, but with the changing sexual mores and values of the late 20th century. Women have agency. Orgies are severely out of fashion. You can't just talk about your dick in public all the time. Velvet isn't the only fabric they make clothes out of. Worse yet, you need to brush your teeth. 
Wow, Dave, sounds like nothing's changed since the 90s. Well, other than the fact that the Austin Powers movies have highly problematic jokes about little people, same-sex relationships, Asians, sizeism, and worst of all, Swedish penis enlargers. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess something like Austin Powers probably couldn't come out today. You're right, Jonah. It is my favorite movie of all time. So should we skip the critical brain then? No way. No, 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 no. We hurt the ones we love the most, my friend. That's why I left that dead rat in your pantry. You know what? I've had cats before, and I saw it as a sign of respect. Well, I respect you a whole hell of a lot, pal. And what we swingers were rebelling against is uptight squares like you, whose bag was money and world domination. We were innocent, man. If we'd known the consequences of our sexual liberation, we would have done things differently, but the spirit would have remained the same. It's freedom, baby, yeah. I mean, we watch these Austin Powers movies and what we remember are the catchphrases, the double entendres, the Austin drinking fat bastard shit in the second movie. Those are the things we remember. We don't necessarily remember the point of the movie. So that's why we wanted to go back and talk about this film this week. Before we get into the movie itself, let me give you some context, because I know you weren't a James Bond fan. I do not like James Bond because he's totally sexist. And uh, that made me seem super cool. All right. Well, being into fast cars and drinking a lot and cigars made me cool. Tell me you're an Entourage fan without telling me you're an Entourage fan. <laughs> so the Austin Powers movies came out at the height of the Pierce Brosnan and James Bond era, two years after the release of the film GoldenEye. Pierce Brosnan, also hot off the heels of his funny role in Mrs. Doubtfire. It was Pierce Brosnan fever. Yeah, <laughs> one could say he was the most popular man in America at that point. James Bond, stiff-ass Brit. Let's talk about the look of this movie. It's clearly inspired by the James Bond films by Ken Adam, who was one of the great production designers of all time, built the, the very chrome and futuristic layers of the Bond villains. This is very much that but with a smaller budget and with comedy involved. If you really think about it, James Bond, as 60s as it was, they're quite conservative movies. I don't know if you've seen Goldfinger recently, but I've seen it a million times because I'm a huge James Bond fan. You like watches. All James Bond fans also buy expensive watches. I have a Spectre ring that I'm wearing right now. That's how much I'm a fan of. So in Goldfinger... James Bond says something disparaging about the Beatles and how the Beatles sound terrible. Like he is not hip. Yeah. But the 90s perspective and our perspective now is to look at those Bond movies and think that they were really cool. But those first five were not really of the time at all. I think most of those Bond parodies were more influenced by Casino Royale starring Peter Sellers and Woody Allen and David Niven which was very of its time, very contemporary 60s, and was a huge hit, even though it was not a real James Bond movie. And it's borderline unwatchable today. But I think if you ask Mike Myers today, he would probably say, like, yeah, I was incredibly influenced by the Casino Royale movie from the 60s when I was making Austin Powers. Like, he was and still is so good at being both the kind of person who can make fun of a thing, but also the person who can make the thing. Austin Powers could sit next to all of those 60s movies. Very shagadelic. This was also the end of the kind of the SNL movie cycle, you know, starting all the way back with the Blues Brothers and then picking up in the 90s with Wayne's World, Coneheads, 
this was not an SNL movie, but it might as well have been an SNL movie because the story is essentially a Saturday Night Live sketch. <laughs> it's super spy from the 60s, wakes up in the 90s, and what's going to happen? Is he going to embarrass himself? That's exactly what happens. But this was like Mike Myers following up the failure of Wayne's World 2. It was the black sheep of Wayne's World movies. You have to remember how big Wayne's World was. At the time, this was like a pop culture phenomenon. And Mike Myers was on top of the world. Dana Carvey was on top of the world. It was a period of time where Mike Myers was not sure what he was going to do, right? So Austin Powers ends up being this very personal story, whereas Dana Carvey didn't do personal movies. He did stuff like Master of Disguise and Clean Slate. But Mike Myers had this, and still does, have this authorial vision that I think has rubbed a lot of people at Hollywood the wrong way, but has led to him making movies that people revisit over and over again. And even something that wasn't his idea originally, like uh, So I Married an Axe Murderer. One of my favorites. Ends up having this really interesting autobiographical runner about his parents. It was all the stuff he liked. He liked Beat Generation stuff. That's what he liked about San Francisco. Yeah, he made himself into a, like a funny poet. There was all these things he added in and all of his like Mike Myersisms that made that a Mike Myers film. Yeah, otherwise it would have just been kind of like a knockoff of Basic Instinct or Fatal Attraction or something. But it's mostly just the stuff with Mike Myers being Mike Myers and talking to himself as his father, doing that Scottish accent. These movies, all three of them, are about fathers. So I Married an Axe Murderer is about his dad. Shrek has a Scottish accent because his dad was Scottish. Like, there's just so much to his work that is about himself. And we talk about parent issues, dad issues on this show all the time. And it's so apparent even in the first movie because of the presence of Scott Evil. And Seth Green doesn't get a lot of credit, I think, Jonah, for how good he was in these movies. That's a very good point. He does a good job of playing the petulant, young, forgotten son, but brings so many little bits and humor and heart and sadness to the role. I like animals. Maybe I'd be a vet. An evil vet? No. Maybe like work in a petting zoo. An evil petting zoo? You always do that! Yeah, he really wants to just, like, please his father, even though he is a grumpy, snotty kid. He's also, just like all of us, we're people who want to please our parents. We want to, in some way, make them proud of us. And boy, Dr. Evil's never proud of Scott. He does not give two shits about Scott. And then in the second movie, he replaces him with a clone. I shall call him Mini-Me. Is just harsh, man. That's all dads want, right? That is just not cool. Uh, <laughs> well, yeah, there's a narcissism to that idea of Dr. Evil saying, you know what? I don't want this child that is a lot like me and I just don't want to admit it. I want to just raise myself again. But I also want him to have really sharp teeth and bite people. <laughs> I always used to think that like that people who wanted kids were the you know huge narcissists where they just want another them running around the world. But I realized what I did getting a vasectomy is the most narcissistic thing because it's like there can never be another me. The bloodline peaks with me. I mean, I guess I do think there is narcissism to it. As a father myself, I'm proud of him and that pride is also pride for what I have accomplished as a father. And you're a really good dad. Thank you. I think so. Dads are a very specific thing. And then both of our dads are, are passed away. And this movie was born because of because of Mike Myers' dad dying. Yep. Mike Myers' dad loved all of these old 60s movies. They would watch them together. And that bonding experience is what led him to 
look at this period of time and these ideas and these these movies. So it is almost a love letter to his father and a sign of how disappointed he was in his father. There's that great scene in the first one where Dr. Evil and Scott go to the counselor, who is, oddly enough, Carrie Fisher for some reason. <laughs> Carrie Fisher with a great cameo in this scene. And, and Dr. Evil explains his backstory here. And they're just not hearing each other at all. And Dr. Evil is so obsessed with like explaining you know, his shorn scrotum and all of these things. At the age of 14, as a roastery named Vilma, ritualistically shaved my testicles. My dad never would have gone to therapy. So good for Dr. Evil going to therapy. My dad thought it was an attack against him that I went to therapy. <laughs> yeah, what did I do wrong, huh? Well, everything. Dr. Evil doesn't even care if he messed up because he didn't know he had a son until he woke up from cryo-freeze. It's so funny how, like, how serious we're getting for the super funny movie, but I only think I recently came to terms of how my dad wasn't super great. Like, if you asked me back then and all through my 20s and stuff, I would have been like, he was great, he loved me. Yeah, sure, he messed up, but he loved me. I guess that's true. I thought my dad loved me, too. <laughs> we, we were all kind of like, yeah, of course, my parents are here. They're here to take care of me, and they buy me stuff, and that's enough, right? And then later on, when you're an adult, you realize, oh, they didn't, I didn't do anything for me, really, like emotionally. I think um, Mike's dad was an alcoholic, I believe. You know, those are the things you kind of start to come to terms with around our age, I think. Oh, I think I was affected by that without realizing it. Yeah, Dr. Evil has this monologue, as we were talking about earlier. My father would womanize, he would drink, he would make outrageous claims like he invented the question mark. <laughs> And what you're seeing there is that Dr. Evil also had a horrible relationship with his dad and that it just continues to compound on itself. This is a sign, I think, these movies that Mike Myers has thought about this. These are really, really earnest movies when you strip away all of the silliness. These movies are really just about like doing the right thing and staying positive. And I guess in a way, this is kind of similar to the Parks and Recreation sort of attitude of comedy, which is the cheerful doofus. Leslie Nope was was always positive about everything, even though everything was falling apart around her. And that's kind of how Austin Powers is. Austin Powers is never like, oh, this is a really serious problem that I have to deal with. It's always, I'd like to have sex right now. <laughs> I guess like boiling that character down to his horniness is what makes him both repulsive to some people and endearing to other people because he just has this one-track mind. You know, Dave, this is a very interesting point. We think about this a lot when it comes to the movies we're doing with Mystery Science Theater. That's not that Austin Powers was a bad guy. And it's not like these movies were bad when they came out. At the time, that movie was fun and great. And it, it did its job. Yeah, and they were also transgressive. These movies were kind of like, not sticking it to the man, but they were edgy. They were edgy in the sense that they were parodying the blessed 60s, the, the baby boomer dream of free love and all of that stuff. I don't think people were really doing that back then. It's still in the Clinton era where Bill Clinton was this physical embodiment of everything that baby boomers thought they were supposed to be. They're supposed to smoke weed and go to an Ivy League school and become the president and play the saxophone on Arsenio Hall and be cool, you know, be a swinging cool guy. I don't want to spoil what movie it is, but there's a movie that takes place in the future that we're doing right now in the new season of Mystery Science Theater, which we're writing. And like they go to a 90s ghost town in this movie. And like we have a riff in there where two people get out of the ship and they're looking around the ghost town and like, wow, look at all this 90s optimism. <laughs> Yeah, it was a really optimistic time. It's hard to 
put ourselves in those shoes now when we've been through so much. You know, you can't get away with just irony anymore. But what's hilarious about that is that this is a movie from the 90s making fun of movies from the 60s and saying, look at how old and stupid this is. When in reality, we're doing that same thing now. And we could do a parody of Austin Powers today that would be making fun of 90s movies, even though this is a movie making fun of 60s movies. It's like the Russian nesting doll of irony and, and satire. Most art and comedy especially is just a, a, a distortion and a take on what's happening at the moment. Let's look at Austin Powers from a modern perspective. I want to talk about the fact that this is a movie that portrays a hero that is incredibly horny, but also very much sex positive and like cool kind of non-misogynist. Like Austin Powers really loves women in a very particular, peculiar way. He's not possessing women at all. He's He just likes to have sex. That's, that's the one thing about this movie that has aged well, is that he sees these women as co-workers for the most part, even though they're you know, scantily clad and not well-formed characters. But he does respect them. He does respect Vanessa in the first one. He does respect Felicity in the second one. And he barely even touches Foxy Cleopatra in the third one, probably because Beyonce was way too young for Mike Myers. But we don't have to get into that. Anyway, that was one of the things when I rewatched it during the quarantine that really struck me is that he's kind of like this beta male sort of simp who's just like obsessed with women and can't help but really love them. Do I make you horny, baby? Yeah, okay, if Austin Powers is a swinging sex machine that always beats the bad guys, how does that make him a beta male? Just because you carry a dainty firearm in your pants and have a variety of anonymous sexual encounters with women of numerous nationalities doesn't mean you're an alpha. You see, Austin Powers is at his core a scared little boy. Wait, so hold on, you're just trying to say that maybe inside all of us there is a mini-me praying to get out. Something like that. All three of these movies are about fathers and sons. If that's Dr. Evil and Scott, Dr. Evil and his adopted clone, or Austin, Dr. Evil, and their actual father, Nigel. These movies are littered with sons hoping to live up to their fathers and the disappointments that come when you fail. Do you maybe think you're projecting a bit, though? Maybe a little, but Mike Myers has talked about his own father, as we mentioned before, and how he was his greatest critic. That his family was the toughest laugh he ever had to get. Is it a coincidence that he gave Dr. Evil the voice of his surrogate work father, Lauren Michaels? I think not. Oh, I guess you're not doing an SNL packet this year. You think Lauren listens to the show? I don't think he knows what a podcast is. <laughs> you're probably right. To that point, Dave, the thing about Lauren Michaels being a father figure, that is the case also for the kids in the hall. In their book written by Paul Myers, Mike Myers' brother, he does talk about how all these guys in this troupe had problematic fathers, and then they found Lauren Michaels, who became a surrogate father. It's weird that both the kids in the hall and Mike Myers are clearly fond of Lauren Michaels, but also getting out a lot of frustration in these characters. I didn't have an alcoholic father like the kids in the hall, but I did have an emotionally withholding distant father. So every time I've ever worked for a rich, successful man, I'm always like, mm, I just really want you to like me. And what if I said the one funny thing or smart thing that you're going to like and love? And, and that's never happened. <laughs> It's a thing that I think motivates a lot of people in show business, in comedy, in media and entertainment is I didn't get enough from my parent. 
So I'm going to try really hard to get that approval from someone else, and especially someone who's got a lot of money. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Because if I impress them, my surrogate parents, they will give me money, and then that money will impress my real parents. <laughs> in the final film in the trilogy, Gold Member, Austin has to come to terms with the fact that his dad thinks he's a total loser. Nigel is more suave, more handsome, and a better spy than Austin. But he's also a total asshole. You know, I risked my life trying to save you, and you still don't give me any respect. Respect? Oh, come on. If you've got an issue, here's a tissue. The point of this movie is that Austin has become such an upstanding, emotionally aware modern man that he can never compete with his ruthless, brutish, emotionally unavailable alpha male dad. Also, he finds out his brother is Dr. Evil for some reason, and Fat Bastard loses a bunch of weight from eating Subway sandwiches? Yes, Jonah, it is my favorite movie ever. <laughs> Are you saying you can be into free love and swinging, but also be a sensitive beta male? Absolutely. In fact, the only way to have any functional romantic relationship is to be willing to interrogate yourself and go to therapy which is also the theme of Mike Myers' film, The Love Guru. Oh my God, you buried the lead. I planted the seed for you. And look at you, you grew it into a mighty oak of an idea. A beautiful tree, a majestic shade-giving, fruit-bearing tree. As I said earlier, Mike Myers' entire body of work is about self-actualization and autobiography, but it is also about critiques of masculinity itself. <laughs> You know, Dave, this might be your best Galaxy Brain takeover. <laughs> really? Yes, yeah. You might say that. We're not worthy. We're not worthy. Was that just a setup for a Wayne's Roll reference? You know what? I'm trying my best. All right. Well, I'll allow it. Thank you. When we come back, Maggie Mae Fish cruises over to our swinging bachelor pad to get into the fragile male psyche of Austin Danger Powers. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welcome back to the show. It's been 24 years since the first Austin Powers film, and in that time, the themes of toxic masculinity, childhood alienation, and adult horniness have only become more relevant. At the same time, it's a movie littered with jokes that haven't aged well at all. Regardless, the Austin Powers trilogy is a touchstone for generations of comedy fans. So to figure out if we can separate the fart from the fartist, we've enlisted the beautiful mind of writer and actress Maggie Mae Fish. Maggie, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much. This uh, I was so excited when I got the email and more excited when I found out it was going to be about Austin Powers. <laughs> I, I, I figured you were the, the perfect person to answer this first question. Mm -hmm. Is Austin Powers secretly the first simp in movie history? 
Upon the rewatch, like you said, there are many jokes that age poorly. There are things that feel dated about it. However, overall, is Austin not deconstructing his own ideas of masculinity throughout the series? So yeah, he's a bit of a simp while, you know, playing with all the tropes of being a weird discombobulated James Bond character. You said over the series, there is something to be said about like, you know, he puts out the first Dawson Powers, International Man of Mystery, and then maybe he read some of the reviews about how problematic it was. It was that maybe Mike Myers being confronted just the same that uh, Austin Powers was in the movie being like, wait, maybe I should start to update, you know, some of these ideas and make Austin grow a bit more. Or would you think that was always the plan? You know, that's a great thought. And Mike Myers seems like the kind of guy that would absolutely be, you know, responsive to reviews and things like that. And I do have to say, well, I did I did watch all three in preparation for this. So I am your best guest. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. I especially love the third, not only simply because young Beyonce and watching her act is, is quite delightful. But yeah, by the third, like the entire plot is about him and his father and their relationship and... Uh, Austin Powers deciding if he's going to recreate and or try and change uh, his relationship with his dad, which I would say is more advanced than the other two, especially looking at masculinity. So I'd love to see how old Kylie, our producer, could you maybe check and see how old was Mike Myers when he made Austin Powers? Because I'm wondering if it's going to match up with me and a lot of my uh, male friends just hitting a certain age range and just going time to start living an examined life. 34. Mike Myers is fucking 34. When fuck that. Fuck him. Wow. <laughs> oh shit. I'm sorry. My my male comic bitterness is uh, starting to seep out. I apologize for that. Yeah, I was gonna say you guys are both failures. Yeah. Well, 100. percent There's no question about that. I always think about that line from Ed Wood where he's like, Orson Welles was only 24 when he made Citizen Kane. I'm already 30. It's like that thing you just. Can, but then you always have in your head, well, Rodney Dangerfield was 50 when he made it, so I still got time. You can't help but compare yourself to other people. And I think that's probably what Mike Myers did all the time. His entire life, he was probably comparing himself to Peter Sellers. And that's part of why I think he made these movies in the first place is because of that love of those his heroes. Comparing yourself to those people is good and fine and wonderful and motivates you in a lot of ways. But it also has a dark side where Joda might start screaming. <laughs> like I said, Austin really does seem to appreciate women. Well, he's also objectifying them all the time, Maggie. What do you make of the gender politics of this movie? I mean, is it subverting the comedy of the 90s or is it just kind of part of that world of kind of jocular 90s comedy? I would say a little bit of both. It does a thing where while critiquing, there are moments throughout that also indulge in the critique. And I actually watched it with a friend who they grew up socialized as male. And when they were watching, they were like, when you're a young boy, the satire kind of goes over your head. So really, you're just kind of watching it at face value. So I think actually, as you're older, you kind of get more out of it. And the satire is a lot clearer. Like the self-reflection, I think, is a lot easier to see when you're older. But that does beg the question that, I mean, it's also such a great film for kids, <laughs> especially in the 90s. Like every, like I was a kid when I watched it. And most people I knew were kids. Definitely did not pick up on the deconstruction of masculinity. <laughs> yeah. So I think it toes the line, but actually, but now like as, a, you know, a modern woman, as you would say, I love the Austin Powers series. Can we enjoy something that's gleefully, like we can only project the idea that maybe he was deconstructing, but what if it, this was just like, he just thought these were funny. Can we still enjoy it? Is it still allowed? Oh man, 
yes and no, yes, because like we're human and like I laugh at them too. So yes. But also, you know, it is fun to think about it. I mean, I pulled up a couple of films that Austin Powers kind of pulls from. And actually a lot of these films in the past were from like a women's point of view, such as like Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice from 1969, Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, Valley of the Dolls. I mean, there's a lot of examinations from women's point of view of the sexual revolution. So there is a lot of media to, you know, add to someone's repertoire if they were looking for that point of view. Yeah. These are also men making these movies, you know. Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice was, I believe, Paul Mazursky. That's a guy looking at these issues and, and kind of projecting their own wants and desires onto these female characters as opposed to women being able to kind of like actually speak about what they're going through, you know. Right. The great female filmmakers that you end up not hearing about unless you do any sort of digging, like Claudia Weil or somebody like that, you know, they weren't allowed to be big Hollywood studio directors because they were telling stories that didn't fit within the paradigm. But I want to ask you about a specific part of this movie and a specific part of 60s culture that I think we're still reckoning with today. There is the moment in the first Austin Powers movie. Vanessa and Austin have had this wild night out in Vegas, and she's finally like kind of seeing what's interesting about him and why her mother was so enamored with him. And she gets drunk and passes out on the bed, and she kind of comes on to him a little bit, and he says, no, I'm not going to, you know, this is not right. You're not in the right state of mind. I'm going to put you to bed. And this is, I think, the first time I ever really understood the concept of consent in, in the adult way when I saw this movie when it first came out. And it's not something that you associate, unfortunately, with the 60s. When you think about the 1960s and the kind of men who were successful at that time, who were moving the culture forward, Roman Polanski and Woody Allen are the first two people that you probably think about because they were considered these tiny little men, these these dictators who were also sex symbols for some reason. So the 60s seems, in retrospect, to be a decade that was anti-consent. Do you think this movie was actually kind of a critique of, of that 60s man? Absolutely, yeah. And I think that the moment that you pointed out, I think, kind of pinpoints, I think in Mike Myers' like heart of hearts, that is kind of the heart of the series, deconstructing that, the male assumption, the assumption that that he deserves that woman in that situation. Yeah, and I think Mike Myers is aware of that. And again, I think that is kind of like why he wanted to do this in the first place. Like you said earlier, when he's like, you know, a young kid comparing himself to all these James Bond's characters and realizing where he falls short, I think in a way that sympathy kind of transfers to women and all the roles that they feel like they have to emulate that obviously everyone falls short of because we're human. and <laughs> we're uh... Yeah. I, I do think that there's a lot of, of really important material about sexual politics in these movies, but really what they're about is about dads. And we have been, I think this podcast has turned into an examination of daddy issues for some reason. Galaxy dads. It comes up a lot in, in film analysis and critique. Yeah, because I think it comes up in life all the time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but this movie really... I think affected both of us because of how interested we are in where we came from and in the relationship that people have to their parents. This movie 
just like is littered with these characters. Scott, Austin, Mini-Me, Dr. Evil. They're all totally messed up about their own fathers. Mini-Me is so codependent that he turns himself into an Austin Powers clone toward the end of Goldmember. It's like the type of men, like all the generations kind of before us, all the men that were celebrated were all suffering because they all had to go to war at some point or be affected by a war. And so it's like generation after generation of compounded men with PTSD having kids and then fucking up their own kids. Uh, And then the cycle just continued. That's what was on screen. And then like the next generation, even they might have not had any kind of PTSD for more, but then they saw what their father loved and what movies he loved. And it just kind of starts to swirl around into this insane PTSD culture of masculinity. And like, it is a little bit of like Mike Myers going like, why? Yeah. Austin's dad is an asshole. Dr. Evil's dad is an asshole. His, his adopted dad. Scott's dad is an asshole because Dr. Evil's dad was an asshole. Like you see the generational trauma in this beautiful saga I call the Austin Powers trilogy. But I gotta, I gotta ask you this question, Maggie. Why would men rather make a hugely successful spy parody movie series than go to therapy? <laughs> That's a great question. Yeah, one of them uh, seems really fun. You know, if you're comparing the two, I'd rather make a, a spy movie, I guess, than go to therapy. But I especially appreciate art created by men that do bring out these questions and are an examination of it. Just because it's interesting. And and like you said, it's the thing that so many men deal with and people and women internalize things in a, you know, in a similar way. So I think it's in a way it's really universal and somehow also under discussed. Yeah, it is a huge way to try and work out some stuff. It is something like, yeah, it's like maybe he's like, well, I don't have time for, you know, therapy is expensive. Movies make me money. You know, what's the uh, what's the gamble? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. 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 What's the difference? Well, yeah. eventually you can become rich enough to afford therapy. Like Mike Myers has WGA and SAG insurance. Go out there and get therapy. Uh-huh. Exactly. <laughs> anyway, the point of all three of these movies is not for Austin to get the girl, which is, I think, a lot of male focused comedy is the Ghostbusters, Stripes, other Bill Murray movies. It's all about like getting the girl and everything else is kind of subordinate to that. But these movies are about Austin in in all three cases learning something about himself. And that is the point of the movie. The point of the movie is Austin grows out of being an obnoxious horn dog completely. Uh, learns that there are good things about the 90s and people in the 90s learn there are good things about the 60s. The second one, you know, he learns that his mojo is inside of him and he's he doesn't need this this orange goo to make himself a good person. And then the third one is about coming to terms with his dad being an asshole. That's really revolutionary in terms of how comedies are structured because they're always just about like, well, you know, there's this hot girl and I want to impress her. So I'm going to join the army. Absolutely. And I'll add in each film, like as a female here, you get why each woman like chooses Austin Powers, which is like in so many like male comedies where there is like a girl involved kind of skip that step where they like they're just together. And as a woman, you're like, all right, like, sure. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. But it needs like, you get it. And I think it is like, you see Austin Powers growing and like, that's all you can really ask of a person, especially a person you're going to be in a relationship with them working on themselves, them realizing things about themselves. That's just as attractive as, you know, if you're chock full of mojo, which (laughs) A lot of films don't do that. There is one thing about this movie that is not attractive that we should address, and that is Fat Bastard. We have to talk about Fat Bastard. 
I want to read a quote from a 2019 Entertainment Weekly oral history in which Mike Myers addresses the critique of Fat Bastard. He says, what I really wanted to explore was in my adult years, I've always struggled with my weight. When I turned 25, I was on SNL and I was like, Jesus, I have a weight problem. And with James Bond characters, they give them some sort of affliction, like the bad guy's monster. And I thought, what if there is a sensitivity around his weight? I really didn't have a character that was fully formed for Fat Bastard until I came up with the line of, I eat because I'm unhappy, and I'm unhappy because I eat. Which is something that I had come to the conclusion of about my own life. Does the vulnerability that he's expressing here grant the character a pass for being really, really, really disgusting and horrible? I will say, especially with like things like that, I do think it's interesting and important, and especially for men to talk about body issues. Because as women in the society, you feel like we feel like we can talk about it and we have spaces to discuss it and much less so for men. And so with that explanation, I think we can see someone, you know, taking an approach to address something that a lot of men deal with, with maybe not the best tactic. But also, like I said, it's so rare to discuss that in the first place that, you know, I think you're kind of seeing like a a messed up first like attempt to try and deconstruct that. So like with sympathy, I think you can see how that character was important to discuss, especially in a movie like this, where we're talking a lot of different issues of masculinity and, you know, body issues. Considering all that we've talked about with Mike Myers and how personal his work is, would you consider him an auteur, even though he never directed a movie himself? He is the clearly the primary creative visionary behind Austin Powers behind the loathsome, the love guru. Do you think he's an auteur, Maggie? You uh, cover auteur theory quite a bit on your your YouTube channel. So I think you're probably the perfect person to answer this question. Oh, man. I would say usually and for the most part, I think in total, I'm somewhat against the idea of auteur. However, I will say that if I was going to apply it to anyone, I would say Mike Myers would be the type of creative that I would give the idea of an auteur for. I don't think he would agree, and I don't think he would accept that idea. But if we're thinking about the 90s and thinking about like the impact of that type of comedy, again, like we're still feeling the repercussions of that years later uh, in comedy films. So I don't want to call anyone an auteur, but if there was like a step below auteur, I would say... Yeah, sure. Why not? (laughs) Just to wrap this up, I really love Mike Myers, and I hope people look at these movies not just as a big, dumb romp, but as movies that are reflections of this man's real feelings, his real pain and his real his desires for what the world could and should be. Yeah, it's very rare you come across a comedian with so much heart who is also given all these opportunities. You know, I feel like it's either one or the other. So, yeah, I hope people see Michael Myers as a, you know. When you said Michael Myers, I immediately thought of Halloween. Him too, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You know what? Give Michael Myers uh, some respect, okay? Yeah, Yeah, I hope everybody watches his weird new Netflix show when that comes out. But what they should definitely watch is your YouTube channel, Maggie. You want to tell people about your YouTube? Yeah, I look at movies, most of them old ones. And yeah, we kind of take a modern look at some classics. I really loved your video about The Shining and Lost Highway. And it made me look at Lost Highway in a very different way. So I'm glad that I'm glad that I watched that. I'm glad you're doing good work out there. You're at Maggie Mayfish on Twitter, correct? Correct. Uh, M-A-E. 
not M-A-Y. Follow her, everybody, please. Uh, well, thank you again for joining us and may the shag be with you. Oh, thank you so much, guys. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Each week, we wrap up this show with a Galaxy Brain take from one of our listeners. Here is one now. Hey, Galaxy Brains. My name's Jenny, and I wanted to leave my Galaxy Brains take for this week. I saw the movie Cruella in theaters. Didn't want to pay the $30 on Disney+. Plus. I really enjoyed it. I had a great time. But at the end of the day, I don't buy, based on this telling of the Cruella story, that Cruella is really going to murder Dalmatians. I don't buy it. I just, I don't see her going on that trajectory over time. You know what? That is a fantastic idea. A lot of people are up in arms about, it's like, this lady's going to kill dogs. You know what? Does she end up killing any dogs in the original uh, story, in 101 Dalmatians? Or is she still doing that thing that she clearly learned that made her a star having that personality, having like playing with the idea that you might kill a bunch of cute dogs that gets people talking about you, that gets you into the papers. And she realizes doing these huge, ridiculous stunts, being this big, terrible personality is what made her uh, a superstar in that world. So maybe she really doesn't want to kill those dogs and she's never going to end up doing it, but she wants to play like it because it gets everyone talking. It's about the danger, Jonah. It's the difference between Gigi Allen and Alice Cooper. Ooh. Gigi Allen did all that. He really did like carve stuff into his chest and shit on stage. Alice Cooper had a snake and like there was some fake blood and like a giant Frankenstein doll. He didn't shit on himself. Gigi Allen lived that life. Gigi Allen really loved shit. (laughs) Alice Cooper wasn't a Satanist. He was just a regular guy who just liked to hang out with people backstage like in Wayne's World. You know, he's just a cool dude. It was David Geffen, actually, that gave Alice Cooper the idea of being like a goth rocker. He was just a normal, like, 70s rock guy. And he's like, what if you were evil? And that's what sold. That's what made Alice Cooper Alice Cooper. That's exactly what is doing. That audience Colin Galaxy take is perfect. David Bowie did the same thing. David Bowie was just doing skiffle music in a turtleneck, as we said in that episode. Uh, but then he became Ziggy Stardust and became a superstar. Cruella is just the natural evolution of music at the time projected into this fashion world of the movie. It's really a better film than a lot of critics gave it credit for when it came out. So I'm glad that we got a Galaxy Brain take about Cruella because I I thought it was really wonderful. I agree. Yeah. But if you want to call in and do the same thing that our friend here did today and blow our minds, we'd love to hear your Galaxy Brain take on next week's episode topic, Marvel Studios Black Widow. Or you can tell me how Austin Powers is actually a movie about Western colonialism. Whatever you want, really. Our number is 213-570-8069 and is also listed in our show notes. Give us a call and leave a voicemail with your take. Just please, for all that's good and holy, make it friggin' weird. That's a wrap on this week's Galaxy Brains. If you love this show, don't forget to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and tell us exactly how great we are. Next week, you'll be shocked to learn that we're covering the new, get this, Marvel movie, Black Widow. Shocked? Yes, our audiences are startled easily. I mean, we did In the Heights, and now we're jumping genres over to Black Widow? Ha, come on! So if our audience is startled easily, I shouldn't scream the credits really loudly? Definitely not. Galaxy Brains is produced by Kylie Holloway and me, Dave Schilling. The show is engineered by Dan Durek, with music from Gautam Shrikashen. Our executive producer is Matt Patches, and our developing producer is Zach Mack. Polygon's editor-in-chief is Chris Plant, and Russ Rushdick is the director of special projects. Special thanks to Andrew Melnizek, who helped create the show. Thanks, listeners. Until next time, I'm Jonah.
And I'm Dave. Take us home, large man born out of wedlock. Get in my belly! Ah! 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 Oh! Oh! You scared me, Dave. 